Okay, so we finished last week with section 52. Again, we're studying Visuddhi Manga, Sila Nidesa, the first section regarding morality. So we've come through 52 sections. And our last, the last thing we were studying was the the third of the we're studying the four Chattuparisuddha Sila, the four purifications of, of morality. So we've studied restraint in regards to the Patimoka. Quote, here Bhikkhu dwells restrained with the Patimoka restraint. Danger in the slightest fault. Bhante, just so you know, you're cutting out just a little bit. Yeah. It's my audio. Aurora, could you start us off with 53? I'll start us off with 53. Now, as regards the virtue of restraint of faculties shown next to that in the way beginning, on seeing a visible avi, herein he is a bhikkhu, established in the virtue of the pedimoka restraint. On seeing a visible object with the eye, on seeing a visual object with the eye consciousness that is capable of seeing a visual object, and has borrowed the name eye from its instrument. But the ancient Cortana said, the eye does not see a vis visible object because it has no mind. The mind does not see because it has no eyes. But when there is the impingement of door and object, he sees by means of the consciousness that has eye sensitivity as its physical basis. Now, an idiom such as this is called an accessory location, locution, like he shot him with his bow and so on. So the meaning here is this, on seeing a visual object, with eye consciousness. Apprehends neither the signs. He does not apprehend the sign of women, woman or man, or any sign that is a basis for defilement, such as the sign of beauty, etc. He stops at what is merely seen, nor the particulars. He does not apprehend any aspect classed, aspect classed as hand, foot, smile, laughter, talk, looking ahead, looking aside, etc., which has acquired the name particular because of its particularizing defilements, because of its making them manifest themselves. So we're talking about sense restraint, and the point of sense restraint is not just to avoid seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and feeling and thinking things that would give rise to defilements, but to actually stop seeing at just seeing. And so this is where we get this teaching. This is a direct quote of the Buddha. 
that should apprehend neither the signs nor the particulars. And so he's explaining what are the signs. Signs are like um, the telltale indicators, the sign of a woman or the sign of a man, those, those aspects of a vision that makes it look like a woman or a man. The particulars are the characteristics like uh, beautiful, ugly, and so on. Red, blue, whatever. Dark, light, big, small, tall, short. All of these things are to be eschewed in favor of simply seeing. This is why we remind ourselves seeing, seeing, and so on. Am I finished there, or is there more? Um, that part is finished. Yes. Oh, there's one more sentence. He only apprehends what is really there, like Elder Mahatissa, who dwelt at Jitya Pabata. Story. Someone gets to tell the story of Mahatissa Jitya Pabata. Did you want to tell the story? No. Who's next? Aurora, are, is your audio working? Yeah, I think Aurora's audio might not be working. Bon, can you read 55? The demon said, as the elder was on his way from... Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> to Anura Dapura Brahms, a certain daughter-in-law of a clan who had quarreled with her husband, had set quarreled with her husband and had set out early from Anura Dapura, all dressed up and tricked out like a celestial nymph to go to a relative's home. Saw him on the road and being low-minded. She laughed aloud. That she laughed a loud laugh, wondering, "What is that?" The elder looked up, and finding in the bones of her teeth the perception of foulness, ugliness, he reached arahantship. Hence, it was said, "He saw the bones that were teeth." I'm getting feedback. Go ahead. Uh, reach, hence it was said, he saw the bones that were her teeth, and kept in mind his first perception. And standing on that very spot, the elder became an arahant. But her husband, who was going after her, saw the elder and asked, Venerable Sir, did you by any chance see a woman? The elder told him, whether it was a man or a woman, that went by, I noticed not. But only that on this high road, there goes a group of bones. This, um, this story is quoted uh, in different places to describe this state of simply seeing things as they are. He didn't even know whether it was a man or a woman. 
There's another story. I don't think it's mentioned here, maybe somewhere else in the Visuddhimagga, of a monk who... There's two, two other stories. One, There was one monk who was living in a cave, and he lived in a cave for this cave for many years. And he was very mindful and very, and very perfect in this restraint of the senses. And one day these younger monks came to visit him. And when they got to the cave, they remarked on how wonderful the paintings on the wall were. Someone had painted all sorts of the uh, story of the Buddha, all, all sorts of depictions of events in the Buddha's life. And they were quite well done, and 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 they remarked on how how skilled and how how intricate and detailed they were. And the resident monk looked up at them and said, "I you know I I didn't even notice them. <laughs> I didn't realize there were any paintings at all." And he'd been there for like ten years, living in this cave. And the other story is of a monk who it may have been the same monk. I'm not sure. Uh, his 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 fame spread, and this king wanted to to see him. He only knew that it was spring by the petals, the the flower petals from the trees, like the apple trees and the cherry trees, falling on the ground. Because he never looked up at the trees to see that there were leaves on them or not. He only knew the changing of the seasons by what he saw on the road in front of him, because he never he never took his eyes away from the the the, the goal in front of him, path in front of him. And it said that uh, somehow the king sort of forced him to come and pay respect and uh, see him because he wanted to he wanted to see such a wise man. So the uh, elder monk didn't want to come, and finally he forced him with some very cruel subterfuge, or you know, basically blackmail. If you don't come, I'm going to kill all sorts of people, something like that. It's a bit of a long story. And so he comes down, and the king and the queen are sitting there, and he goes up to the king, and without looking up, he says, may the, may May the king, long live the king. And then he goes to the queen and he says the same thing. May, may the king, long live the king, basically. And so they ask him, I said, why did you say long live the king twice? He said, because I didn't know which one was, I didn't know whether it was the king or the queen I was addressing. Never even looked up or cared to pay attention. These are the kind of stories that they mention, the, the power, the strength, the focus of these monks. That is very impressive. It's, it's also kind of funny. I mean, when you read that passage 55, it's, it's kind of funny when you think of, you know, the woman walking along and she's, I can't believe they use the word tricked out. That's kind of funny, but, kind of funny, but she obviously, she was, obviously was put a lot of effort, into, a lot her of effort appearance, into her appearance, was seen as a bag of bones or whatever. That's kind of funny. Is it appropriate? I mean, if you see a woman and you're attracted to her, is it appropriate to um, 
you know, see her as like a bag of bones, or is that uh, just a practice for, for months? Is that appropriate for a lay person? Sure. Great thing. And imagine all her different parts, her blood and her skin and her teeth and her bones. Because I have used that to deal with lust before, but I've, I've talked to women and I've, I've explained like what it is I do, and they get really upset when yeah. you tell them that. I know. Can't imagine why. Even just, uh, even just talking about the idea that the body is something undesirable is. Uh, I remember I did a video a long time ago that got some pretty nasty comments or. No, it was even before that. I remember I was teaching, explaining it at one point. I gave a talk way back many years ago. And someone came to me and just, you know, basically, I think they ended up leaving. They, they decided they, could, they didn't want to stay at our center because of what I'd said. <laughs> it was that bad. Well, it's not even that big of a deal. It's not really what I teach, but. It is something hard to get used to, but once you get used to the idea, it's kind of a freeing idea that, you yeah. Know, I'm not going to worry about myself because yeah, I think that's it. Is a lot of people, hey. a lot of people care very much about their appearance, and traditionally, that women have been more more concerned about their appearance, right? Makeup and uh, concern about all sorts of things. Welcome, Lucas and Ibrethel. We're reading through the Vasudhimaga. We're um, on the Access to Insight version of it on page 24, which is chapter 1, section 56. We're going on to now. And if you if you have a mic, you know, you're welcome to read along. If you don't, maybe just indicate by, um, by muting yourself. Anyway, this, this passage is not exactly talking about loathsomeness. It's pointing out how the monks are, or this monk was able to see it simply as a, uh, an, uh, basically an act of seeing without any idea of what it was. Although he did see it as bones. So it's actually a little bit different because he was practicing, he was practicing asoba. But it's still interesting, and it's a good example of how one can focus simply on one aspect of something and not see all of it, not not concern oneself with all sorts of aspects of it. Yeah, Fifty-six. Is that me? Um, Ebrethel or is, um, do either of you have a microphone? If so, just say yes. <laughs> maybe not set up yet. I think this one's me. 56. As to the words through which, etc., the meaning is by reason of which, because of which non-restraint of the eye faculty, if he, if that person, left the eye faculty unguarded, remained with the eye door unclosed by the door panel of mindfulness. These states of covetousness, etc., might invade, might pursue, might threaten him, he enters upon the way of its restraint. He enters upon the way of the closing 
that eye faculty by the door panel of mindfulness. It is the same one of whom it is said he guards the eye faculty, undertakes the restraint of the eye faculty. Yeah, just more work commentary, not exactly. But the, the point, they are making the important point that this isn't talking about just closing your eyes. It's about closing the eyes with mindfulness. Stopping it from going further than just seeing. So is that the perception? Um, perception isn't the real problem. It's the sankara, the reactions. Bhante, can you read 57? Herein, there is neither restraint nor non-restraint in the actual eye faculty, since neither mindfulness nor forgetfulness arises in dependence on eye sensitivity. On the contrary, when a visible datum as object comes into the eye's focus, then after the life continuum has arisen twice and ceased, the functional mind element accomplishing the function of adverting arises and ceases. After that, eye consciousness with the function of seeing. After that, resultant mind element with the, con with the function of receiving. After that, resultant root causeless mind consciousness element with the function of investigating. I'll explain all this in a second. After that, functional root causeless mind consciousness element accomplishing the function of determining arises and ceases. Next to that, impulsion impels. Okay, let's stop there for a second because that's a, more than a mouthful. It, it's um, in Pali, it's probably a lot less convoluted. But he's simply describing the Abhidhamma explanation of the process of experience. So the life continuum, uh, life continuum is just the mind that continues on even in between experiences. So it's kind of a semi-conscious state. Then there's the adverting. Well, it, it arises twice. And then there's then the mind adverts in the sense of seeks out or turns towards. And then there's the seeing. And then there's the receiving of it. So after the seeing, there's a kind of a knowing that you're seeing. Then there's the investigating, questioning what is it, sort of. And then there's the deciding what it is, which is the determining. And after that, once it's determined what it is, then there's the reacting, and that's the impulsion. That's it. It's quite simple, actually. It's just a lot of words. Herein, there is neither restraint nor non-restraint on the occasion of the life continuum or on any of the occasions beginning with adverting. But there is non-restraint if unvirtuousness or forgetfulness or unknowing or impatience or idleness arises at the moment of impulsion. When this happens, it is called non-restraint of the eye faculty. So what he's saying is you can't 
you can't be mindful of seeing. Exactly. Uh, meditation doesn't occur at the moment of seeing. It occurs moments later. And by moments, we mean, we mean like impossibly small, possible to calculate. So small that it's impossible to calculate. Moments. Uh, it's the moment of reacting, which is the impulsion. So it's that moment when, if there's ignorance in the mind, if there's greed, anger, delusion, etc., in the mind, that's when bad stuff happens. So that's that's what we're trying to change. So if there's mindfulness in the mind at that moment, the moment of reacting, then which is already a few moments removed from the actual experience, but there is then 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 that is where breaking off occurs, that's where the guarding occurs. It's actually quite just a technical explanation, but it's interesting to you know to think about, to be clear on. Thank you. Bant, can you read 58? Why is that? Because when this happens, the door is not guarded, nor are the life continuum and the consciousness of the cognitive states. Like what? Just as when a city's four gates are not secured, although inside the city house doors, storehouses, rooms, etc. are secured, yet all property inside the city is unguarded and unprotected since robbers coming in by the city gates can do as they please. So too an unvirtuousness, etc. arise in impulsion in which there is no restraint when the door, door too is unguarded. And so also are the life continuum and the consciousness of the cognitive series beginning with adverting. Uh, but when virtue, etc., has arisen in it, then virtue is guarded, and so also are the life continuum and the consciousness of somebody else is going to have to finish that. I'm missing that page. Consciousness of the cognitive series beginning with adverting. Next, Robin. Like what? Just as when the city gates are secured, although inside the city the houses, etc., are not secured, yet all property inside the city is well guarded, well protected, since when the city gates are, sh are shut, there is no ingress for robbers. So too, when virtue, etc., have arisen in impulsion, the door too is guarded, and so also are the life continuum and the consciousness of the cognitive series beginning with adverting. Thus, although it actually arises at the moment of impulsion, it is nevertheless called restraint in the eye faculty. It's just saying, you know, that, that it's enough to protect the impulsion moment the reaction 
if you protect the reaction, you protect the rest. It's, it's an odd argument because the the rest of them come before the impulsion, so you're not actually protecting them in any way. It's they, they're they're left unprotected. There's no need to protect them because defilement can't arise. So they have nothing to do with defilement. It's only at the moment of impulsion that we're concerned. So that's why they're protected either way. It's it's an odd simile that he gives in my mind because the, the door of the city comes before the inner doors to all people's houses. That's not the case with the cognitive series, the cognitive process. The last thing is the impulsion, as we saw above. So it's kind of like it's more like um, if all the doors to the city are, if everybody's door in the city is locked, you don't have to lock the city gates because the thieves can go wherever they want in the city. They still can't get into the houses. In the same way doesn't matter if you leave everything else unprotected you just have to protect the last uh, impulsion there's there's no harm in the defile the defilements can't reach the other minds they don't have anything to do with it anyway it's just similes the point is that the only thing that's important is the moment of impulsion that's the moment of karma by the way that's when when the karmic activity occurs So also, as regards the phrases on hearing a sound with the ear and so on, so it is this virtue which in brief has the characteristic of avoiding apprehension of signs entailing defilement with respect to visible objects, etc. That should be understood as virtue of restraint of faculties. Bond, can you read 60? Yeah, um, now, as regards the virtue of livelihood purification mentioned above, next to the virtue of restraint of the faculties, the words of the six precepts announced on account of livelihood mean of the following six training precepts announced thus. With livelihood as cause, with livelihood as reason, one of evil wishes, a prey to wishes, lays claim to a higher than human state that is non-existent, not a fact, the contravention of which is defeat, expulsion from the order. With livelihood as cause, with livelihood as reason, he acts as go-between, the contravention of which is an offense entailing a meeting of the order. With livelihood as cause, with livelihood as reason, he says, a bhikkhu who lives in your monastery is an arahant, the contravention of which is a serious offense in, in one who is aware of it. With livelihood as cause, with livelihood as reason, a bhikkhu who is not sick eats superior food that he is ordered for his own use the contravention of which is an offense requiring ex expiation. With livelihood as cause, with livelihood as reason, a bhikkhuni who is not sick eats superior food that she has ordered for her own use, the contravention of which is an offering requiring confession, is an offense requiring confession. 
If livelihood is cause, or the livelihood is reason, one who is not sick eats curry or boiled rice that he has ordered for his own use, the contravention of which is an offense of wrongdoing of these six precepts. And so it, it singles out six instances where livelihood comes into play in the Patimokha and the rules of the monks. And it's just a that's just a survey of the Vinayapitika. Interesting to have those six in a list. Now he's gonna give a bunch of bunch of kinds of wrong livelihood which are actually quite interesting. Don't find this list elsewhere. As regards scheming, this is the text. Herein, what is scheming? It is the grimacing, grimacery, scheming, schemery, schemedness, by what is called rejection of requisites, or by indirect talk, or it is the disposing, posing, composing, of the comportment on the part of one bent on gain, honor, and renown, of one of evil wishes, a prey to wishes. This is called scheming. Herein, what is talking? Talking at others, talking, talking round, talking up, continual talking up, persuading, continual persuading, suggesting, continual suggesting, ingratiating chatter, flattery, being supery, fondling, on the part of one bent on gain, honor and renowned, of one of evil wishes, of prey to wishes. This is called talking. So these are all ways for monks to get get support. And you'd see probably all of these used today by people looking by religious people looking to urge support among their lay people. It's considered quite wrong in Buddhism because it's it it leads you away from actual practice when you're worried about that makes sense. Bond, can you read 63? Yeah. Uh, herein, what is hinting? A sign to others, giving a sign, indication, giving indication, indirect talk, roundabout talk, on the part of one bent on gain, honor and renown, of one of evil wishes, greater wishes. This is called hinting. Herein, what is called belittling, abusing of others, disparaging, reproaching, snubbing, continual snubbing, ridicule, continual ridicule, denigration, continual denigration, tail bearing, backbiting, on the part of one bent on gain, honor, and renown on one of evil wishes, a prey to wishes, this is called belittling. Herein, what is pursuing gain with gain? Seeking, seeking for, seeking out, going in search of, searching for, seeking out material goods by means of material goods, such as carrying their goods that have been got here, or carrying here goods that have been got from there, 
by one bent on gain, honor, and renowned, renowned by one of evil wishes, a prey to wishes. This is called pursuing gain with gain. Thank you, Pan. Can you read 66? The meaning of this text should be understood as follows. Firstly, as it regards the description of scheming, on the part of one bent on gain, honor, and renown, is on the part of one who is bent on gain, on honor, and on reputation. On the part of one who longs for them is the meaning of one of evil wishes, of one who wants to show qualities that he has not got, a prey to wishes, the meaning is that there's one who is attacked by them. And after this, the passage beginning or by what is called rejection of requisites is given in order to show the three instances of scheming given in the Mahanadisa as rejection of requisites, indirect talk, and that based on deportment. Herein, Bhikkhu is invited to accept robes, etc., and precisely because he wants them, he refuses them out of evil wishes. And then since he knows that those householders believe in him implicitly when they think, oh, how few are our Lord's wishes, he will not accept a thing. And then they put fine robes, etc., before him by various means. He then accepts, making a show that he wants to be compassionate toward them. It is this hypocrisy of his which becomes the cause of their subsequent bringing them even by cartloads that should be understood at the instance of scheming, called rejection of requisites. That's sneaky. I don't know that I've ever seen that exactly. Well, but I've seen sneakier stuff than that. Yeah, it's a lot sneakier than that. But that is common um, to you know, boast about your attainments, or boast about your your not your attainments, your morality, your adherence to rules. You know, like today, not using money as a monk is something that garners a lot of support because it's rare to find monks that don't use money anymore, which is quite embarrassing. But um yeah so i mean in fact monks who don't use money are not necessarily any better than those that do and yet it um you know there's a funny thing in thailand as well not even just not using money in fact that's not the one that they use because even the strict monks use money for the most part but the defining factor that they always ask me is, how many meals do you eat per day? It's always the one thing that they feel is, uh, is a defining factor. If you eat two meals a day, they lose all respect. People, certain people lose all respect for you. If you eat one meal a day, it doesn't matter what else you do. You could, you could sit around. 
sorry. Would sit that around and watch, uh, watch television all day, and as long as you're only eating one meal a day, it's impressive. Would that include even if the, the first meal and the second meal were during the, the right period of time? Yeah, it's, um, it's because certain monks, it, it's really gotten out of hand in Thailand, but it, certain monks have been very strict about only eating once a day. So somehow that seems to be a defining factor. I mean, it's actually more important than people give it credit for, but it's certainly not the defining factor of monk. Sure, I mean, someone could have that one meal be quite the spread. Well, there's, it's still a good thing to only have one meal a day. It's definitely, a, it's definitely um, something the Buddha recommended. What is the reason for having the one meal before noon rather than afternoon? I don't think one is given. It's not. Um, it's not entirely explicit what the time period is. It says uh, there's the weekala, but weekala. Anisaro gives a argument that it weekala, in certain cases, just means night. That um, the commentary is quite clear that it's outside of the morning hours. So. It can only be consumed in the morning. I mean, food, as we say in the West, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. I think that stands that you need. I mean, it's, it's, if, even if you don't study it scientifically, it, it's just uh, rationally, or it's just common sense that the food you eat in the morning is to fulfill you for the rest of the day. Food you eat at night isn't really all that purposeful. It's just to make you feel good. You're, if you're eating the food to do something with it for some purpose, then of course you'll eat it before you have to use it, which is in the morning. So the idea is to eat it first thing. They would have their first meal. You know, I used to, when we were staying in the forest, I would have a meal around 8.30. 8.30 is a good time. Thank you. Bhante, would you read 68? For this is said in the Mahanidesa, what is the instance of scheming called rejection of rest requisites? Here, householders invite bhikkhus to accept robes, alms, food, resting places, and requisites of medicine as cures for the sick. One who is of evil wishes, a prey to wishes, wanting robes, alms, food, resting place, the requisites of medicine as cure for the sick, refuse, ro refuses robes, alms, food, resting places, the requisite of medicine as cure for the sick, because he wants more. He says, what has an ascetic to do with expensive robes? It is proper for an ascetic to gather rags from a charnel ground or from a rubbish heap or from a shop and make them into a patchwork cloak to wear. What has an ascetic 
to do with expensive alms food. It is proper for an ascetic to get his living by the dropping of lumps of food in his bowl while he wanders for gleanings. What has an ascetic to do with an expensive resting place? It is proper for an ascetic to be a tree root dweller or an open air dweller. What has an ascetic to do with an expensive requisite of medicine as cure for the sick? It is proper for an ascetic to cure himself with putrid urine and broken gallnuts. Accordingly, he wears a coarse robe, eats coarse alms food, uses a coarse resting place, uses a coarse requisite of medicine as cure for the sick. Then householders think, this ascetic has few wishes, is content, is secluded, keeps aloof from company, strenuous, is a preacher of asceticism. And they invite him more and more to accept robes, alms food, resting places, and the requisite of medicine as cure for the sick. He says, with three things present, a faithful clansman produces much merit. With faith, faith present, faithful clansman produces much merit. With goods to be given present, a faith, faithful clansman produces much merit. With those worthy to receive present, faithful clansman produces much merit. You have faith. The goods to be given are here. I am here to accept. If I do not accept, then you will be deprived of the merit. That is no good to me. Rather, will I accept out of compassion to you, for you. Accordingly, he accepts many robes, he accepts much alms food, he accepts many resting places, he accepts many requisites of medicine as cure for the sick. Such grimacing, grimacery, scheming, schemery, schemedness is known as the instance of scheming called rejection of requisites. An interesting thing, I don't think it's nearly as common as it, you know, to be singled out as the only scheme that monks have, but it's an interesting one. Because it all sounds good, really. You know, for the most part, this monk is giving good advice, he's giving good reasons. The point is his intention. You know, it's actually not wrong for monks to use all sorts of luxurious things that, that are being discussed there. Well, not all sorts, but robe, uh, any fine robes can be used extent medicines, all sorts of medicines, all these things, for the most part, they're not wrong. But the point is, he's, he's all along, he's, he wants these things. And that in and of itself is also not a, sh a showstopper, because of course, a new monk is not keeping the rules as a, bra as a brag to say, look at how great I am, I don't want any of these things. He wants them, but he keeps the rules even though he wants them because he knows that he or she knows that they're wrong, they're, they're not of any benefit, and wanting them is not the end. It's not a just cause for getting them, for chasing after them. But the point is, he all along intends to, to take these, and he, when the opportunity comes to accept them, he shows that he didn't really mean what he was saying, but but even there, the point is that he, in the end, shouldn't take them. If he had, if this monk, this hypothetical monk, had stayed his ground and said, "Yes, I, I you know, actually, I want those things," but I, it's it's against, as I said, it's against the way of an ascetic. So 
I'm sorry. I'm, no matter what, I'm not going to take them. That would be the best in this case. Of course, the, uh, the best is not wanting them at all, but you have to be clear the difference between wanting to break a rule and actually breaking it. Even if you want to break the rule, it's better not to break it. Because the, the ability to overcome the wanting requires you to wean yourself off. It requires a clear mind that you can't get if you're chasing after what you want. It's not the ideal situation. The ideal situation is to see clearly, give up the wanting. Anyway. Interesting where he says, you know, I will accept them out of compassion for you and, and mentioning merit and everything. It, is that something that happens in Buddhist countries? That oh, yeah, that's a big thing. I mean, and it's genuine in many cases. I mean, there is, it, there's, there, it's, there's a point there. It's good for people to give. But it's all really in the intention. The point is he's using it to get gain for himself beyond what he needs to, to, he's using it as a scheme. He didn't ever really mean it, he was all just a show. So that his, his whole point in saying, oh, I don't accept these things, was simply to get people to have faith in him. And that's, that, that's something interesting, is that even monks who, who refuse things will often be, if they're sincere, they'll often be quiet about it. They won't say, no, I, monks aren't allowed to to accept those things. Ascetics. That's another point: is that we don't actually go about saying those, saying such things. Like instead of telling people, "I'm sorry, monks aren't allowed to to touch money," often you'll just keep quiet, and if they put the money somewhere, you just leave it there. <laughs> go away. Interesting. Bond, can you read 69? It is hypocrisy on the part of one of evil wishes who gives it to be understood verbally in some way or other that he has attained a higher than human state. That should be under the instance of scheming called indirect talk. According as, as it is said, what is the instance of scheming called indirect talk? Here's someone of evil wishes, a prey to wishes, eager to be admired, thinking, thus people will admire me, speaks words about his noble state. He says, he who wears such a robe is a very important ascetic. He says, he who carries such a bowl, metal cup, water filler, water screener, key, wears such a waistband, sandals, is a very important ascetic. He, sa he says, he who has such a preceptor, teacher, who has the same preceptor, who has the same teacher, who has such a friend, associate, intimate companion, he who lives in such a monastery, lean-to, mansion, villa, cave, grotto, hut, pavilion, watchtower, hall, barn, meeting hall, room, at such a tree root, is a very important ascetic, or alternatively, all gushing, all grimacing, all scheming, all talkative, with an expression of admiration, he utters such a deep, mysterious, cunning, obscure, super mundane talk, suggestive of voidness, 
as this ascetic is an obtainer of peaceful abidings and attainment attainment such as, as these scheming scheming is known as the instance of scheming called indirect talk. Yeah, because direct talk is, is the, the point is that direct talk would be a breach, a severe breach, a fatal breach of conduct. If you lie about your superhuman states, it's, uh, it's the end. You're no longer a monk. But here they just imply it by saying, oh yes, monks who wear this color robe, for example, rather than saying, I am enlightened, give, every, give all your gifts to me. Give me gifts. They would uh, say, "Oh yes, these monks who, in this tradition, yada yada yada." There's sort of a, I think there's a bit of this in certain traditions in Buddhism where they, you know, people claim to be descendants or students of such a teacher, and they they use the teacher as a means of supporting their own sort of hanging on by the coattails sort of relying on the gain this is interesting i mean the buddha was clear about this in the dhammadayada sutta he said be heirs to my dhamma don't be heirs to my material wealth shouldn't you shouldn't depend upon a lineage. We do. Our organization is based on my teacher, so we're kind of guilty of that as well. Not for anyone's benefit, it's only for... Not me who says, this is the point, if as a monk I said, oh yes, I'm a student, a direct student, direct student of this monk. Did that to gain some kind of prestige? It's not, that's not correct. That's sort of this sort of thing. It says he who has such a preceptor, teacher, etc. Be careful not to depend upon the reputation of someone else. You should be dependent on your own reputation, your own goodness. Thank you. Richard, are you able to read today? Can you hear me clearly? Oh, yes, very good. Yep, All we're right. on the bottom of uh, page 27, section 70. Yeah, um, it is hypocrisy on the part of one of evil wishes, which takes the form of reportment, influenced by eagerness to be admired. That should be understood as the instant, instance of scheming, dependence on deportment. According, as it is said, what is the instance of scheming called deportment? Here, someone of evil wishes, a prey to wishes, eager to be admired, thinking, those people will, ad will admire me, Compose, composes his walk of his way of walking, composes his way of living, of lying down. He walks studiously, studiedly, stands studiedly, sits studiedly, lies down studiedly. He walks through concentrated stances, lies down, as though concentrated, and he is one who meditates in public. Such disposing, posing, composing of deportment, grimacing, grimacery, scheming, 
schemery, schemedness. <laughs> it's known as the incense of scheming called deportment. You have to understand what he's trying to do here. It's a noble effort, but probably a lost cause. Is he's trying to mim mimic the Pali because the Pali is doing something very similar to these uh, you know, different ways of saying the same thing. It would be uh, different versions of the same word with different suffixes or prefixes, but basically saying the same thing. Yeah, so what is he saying is, oh, sorry, yeah, what is he saying is that, um, his monk is acting, right? Yeah. His conduct is not really yeah, pure, he, but he's just pretending. The essence is this is a, it's all just a show. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. the outside, it's not inside. It's, it's not wrong to do all those things. It's not wrong to, to look like that. But the point is, intentionally for the look, you know. And so it's pretending. Yeah. Doesn't mean we should all act like buffoons we should try to compose ourselves but it should be honest and it shouldn't be for the purpose of praise and gain and so on so then say meditating in public in and of itself it, it wouldn't be wrong or grotesque or anything only if you were doing it just to show off well there is something about the fact that you know it's going to be showing off meditating in public is always a not always. It, it can be. You know, I, I, in airports, I sometimes find it a good place to do meditation. You're just waiting around. So it's also a good place to do walking meditation because there's lots of nooks and crannies you can hide in. But they're still fairly public. And I mean, there's no harm in that because you're not, it's not, at the point is doing this in order to gain supporters to gain wealth, material wealth. This is, again, we're dealing with morality here, right? It's immoral to trick people into supporting you. Herein, the words, by what is called rejection of requisites, mean, by what is called thus, rejection of requisites. Or they mean, by means of the rejection of requisites, that is so called. By indirect talk means by talking near to the subject. Of deportment means of the four modes of deportment, postures. Disposing is initial posing or careful posing. Posing is the manner of posing. Composing is prearranging, assuming a just inspired attitude is what is meant. Grimacing is making grimaces by showing great in intention, <laughs> intenseness. Facial contraction is what is meant. One who has the habit of making grimaces is a grimacer. The grimacer state is grimacery. Scheming is hypocrisy. The way, ayana, of a schemer, kuha, is schemery, kuhayana. The state of what is schemed is schemedness. You see, he's, he's trying to, he's doing a good job, you know. You gotta laud him for his efforts actually giving you what's in the Pali, because there's not much other way you could translate this. It is really just repeating words and breaking them up and putting them back together again. I, I'd like to suggest we stop there. Let's just do an hour today. Unless anybody's really gung-ho to keep going. I'd like to maybe wait and see if we can get a larger group. <laughs>
Sounds good. I'm good with that. I just have one question. Uh, is there is there uh, uh, alternate translations of this that might be less literal and easier to understand, or is this is this it? You want the Reader's Digest or the For Dummies version? Well, you know, you know, like uh, translations, uh, various translations. Sometimes they're like uh, literal translations, and sometimes they translate them to try and capture the meaning. Well, there's not much you can do here because it is really saying what he's, you know, it's just repeating words over and over again. What do you want? What do you want from him? You know, what else could you possibly do? Unless you really just hacked the hacked it apart and just said, well, in basic, what he's saying is, then you'd be you'd be looking at a an abridged or a summarization, and no such thing exists that I'm aware of. This is already a summarization of the Buddha's teaching. You can't get much more summarized. But even if you read it in the Pali, it contains the repetition. Yeah. So you could get rid of that, but I mean, this is, it's not especially hard to read. He's done an admirable job translating. It's just, it's a really tough text. So if you're scared away, then uh, there's not much we can do about that. Really, if you want to handle the text, you really have to. I don't think there's any way around the depth and the complexity. The repetition is kind of good. It just reinforces it, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the biggest problem with studying this text is not having the background knowledge, which is what I'm here for, theoretically. Because if you just read through it, you, you won't get what he's referring to or why he's saying certain things. There's many cases where it's just not, uh, he doesn't make it clear what he's referring to because he assumes his audience has read the Tipitaka or is familiar with the Tipitaka and, and even the commentaries. He's familiar with the Abhidhamma and so on. If you're not familiar with that, it's, that's the point. Is you just get lost. Because he doesn't, it's, he doesn't explain anything. The footnotes in this book help to some extent, but even those aren't, aren't, uh, aren't enough. Well, thank you very much, Bhante, for providing that background, because uh, I can't speak for everybody, but I know for myself I have not read the Tipitaka yet. Not all of it. Glad to be here. Okay, so let's stop there and remember where we're at. We'll pick it up again next week, hopefully. Also, sorry about yesterday. I missed it. was quite loud up here, so just decided not to do it. We're renovating the bathroom. Oh, very nice. Well, take care all. Have a good day. Yeah. See you next week. See you next week. Yeah, see you. See ya.